Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Arizona voters approved the use of recreational marijuana last year. So are all the provisions working? This week, we look at the legal and financial worlds of marijuana. Almost a year ago, 60% of Arizona voters passed Proposition 207, paving the way for the legal recreational use of marijuana. The proposition included language that established a path to erase some low-level marijuana-related offenses. The process is called expungement. Emma Gibson reports even though it became available to hundreds of thousands on July 12th, not very many people are applying. Okay. <laughs> well, let's start yeah. from the beginning, Joel. What can I do for you? All right, so I'm here because a few years ago I had, like, been pulled over for weed, and then it kept happening, like, many times, you know. This so is I Joel. He's from Phoenix and made and, a special uh, trip down to Tucson after hearing about a marijuana expungement clinic being held at the city of Tucson's Ward 6 office. In this story, we're not going to be using his last name for privacy reasons. People who've been arrested, charged, or convicted of low-level marijuana offenses, like having up to two and a half ounces of marijuana or varying amounts of concentrates, plants, and paraphernalia, they've been applying over the last two months to get these offenses erased or expunged. One of the marijuana offenses Joel came down to get help with was from over 10 years ago when he was in high school. Senior year in high school, and I was with my brother and my cousins. We were going to the nightclub, which was like 18 and older at the time. And I just remember we were smoking in my car, and a cop rolled up in a bicycle, knocked on my window. And we were like, oh, heck, like there's a cop on a bicycle here. You know, and that was the first time I got arrested for weed. And then I think the second time... Joel is talking with Sen Umeda at a fold-up picnic table in the corner of the room, filled with a couple of law students, marijuana law reform advocates, and another person looking for help. Umeda is one of the volunteer lawyers at these clinics put on by Arizona Normal, the national organization for the reform of marijuana laws. During the day, Umeda is a public defender in Pima County. After Umeda explains that he is not Joel's lawyer and that he will not be going to court with Joel, they get started looking at Joel's records online, seeing if his charges are expungable, and filling out the expungible application paperwork. Alright, so you're responsible for how accurate this is. Cool? Yeah. I'm going to help you through with that. Okay. They went through the process a couple of times because Joel had a couple qualifying charges. But after about 20 minutes, they were done, and Umeda sent Joel an email with his applications yeah, in it. Other, other cases. All right, Joel. Is that it? Yeah. All right, that's <laughs> so, fast. So yeah. what you're going to do from here is you're yeah. just going to print out the petition. Okay. Um, if you do run across any kind of documentation you can use to support it, whether it's minute entries. Once an expungement um, petition is filed, the prosecuting agency has 30 days to object or grant the expungement. Julie Gunnigal is the director of politics with Arizona Normal. Her name might be familiar to you because she recently ran for county attorney in Maricopa County. She estimates there's about a quarter to half a million people in the state who are eligible for expungements. No one knows the exact number, but people aren't showing up at the clinics very often. It has illustrated the folly of making expungement an opt-in process. This should have been universal and automatic. This should be work that our 15 county attorneys and our AG is doing entirely on their own. 
She says she could see this happening if voters put pressure on their county attorneys and the state's attorney general or their state lawmakers. As of Tuesday in Pima County, almost 70 petitions for expungement have been filed. And the Pima County Attorney's Office says 42 have received partial expungements. For example, the marijuana possession charge was cleared, but the paraphernalia charge wasn't. And one petition has been denied, but the attorney's office is asking for reconsideration. Gungle says some folks don't believe expungement is real, or they become accustomed to life with that charge on their record. But for others, they want those charges expunged. They want to regain access to public benefits, student loans, housing, voting rights, and so much more. So we are still not reaching the most marginalized in our society and those who have been most criminalized by the war on cannabis. The American Civil Liberties Union reports black people in Arizona are three times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white Arizonans. Jaja Simone Brown is with Acre 41, an organization led by black women trying to educate people about equity issues in a variety of different industries, including marijuana. We are, what, three times more likely to be arrested for cannabis. However, we have no ownership in the space. So we are trying to... Prop 207 does have a social equity component to it, setting aside 26 licenses to, quote, Individuals from communities disproportionately impacted by the enforcement of previous marijuana laws. To Simone Brown, that's black and brown communities who are disproportionately arrested for marijuana offenses. But the Arizona Department of Health Services has four broader qualifications for those licenses, and three of them need to be met to qualify. They look at household income, if people live in these disproportionately affected communities, if they've been negatively impacted by past marijuana laws via a relative's conviction, and if they themselves have been adversely affected by those laws, like people qualifying for expungements. If you have some possible expungible offenses, there's an online petition at Arizona Normal's website. And if you're interested in the social equity licenses, ADHS will accept applications in December. For The Buzz, I'm Emma Gibson. As Emma mentioned, social equity was part of the plan in Prop 207. In Tucson, there's a black family that owns two marijuana dispensaries, the Green Med Wellness Center and Purple Med Healing Center. Adriana Cottrell is the general manager of the dispensaries and the co-owner of Harambe Cafe, a private club for the consumption of marijuana that's attached to Green Med. What we're just trying to create there is um, a space where People who want to learn about cannabis or who are already involved in the cannabis community can come together um, and teach each other or learn from each other um, while also consuming. We have uh, several different events monthly, um, like this Saturday we have an upcoming women's expo. It's led by women, but it's open to everybody. Um, and then most of the events are sponsored by either one of the dispensaries, Purple Med or Green Med. Um, any cannabis type event needs to be um, sponsored or hosted by a dispensary. So it's been pretty easy having GreenMed right there sponsoring everything. With Prop 207 coming online and the pandemic easing, but especially Prop 207, did you all see a big change in your business? So as far as the dispensaries go, those were busy the entire pandemic. In fact, it was pretty overwhelming. You know, everyone was on edge at the time. So, um, you know, it was just 
busy and wild and uh, we were all just trying to figure out how to process things in the middle of a pandemic because there's no training for anything like this, especially being a leader. You're the one who has to uh, think of the answers and all that. Um, with Harambe, it was a no-brainer to close. Um, it Because it's in the word there, it's social club. So it was, you know, it was a place just for people to gather. So we, you know, we understood it wasn't safe and um, it was hard, but it did give us time to just buckle down and prep and um, prepare for when this was inevitably going to be over or at least everything was going to reopen. As you mentioned, uh, your dad, who is the official owner of Green Med and Purple Med, is the only black owner of a dispensary in Arizona. Does that lack of diversity hurt things? Yeah, it can be frustrating at times. There's a lot of, you know, people with big money from other businesses who continuously trying to get in the industry. And unfortunately, they don't care who they hurt. Um, And, you know, my dad's born and raised here. He's not some millionaire who got into the industry. You know, he's I've obviously known him my whole life and he's always just been really hardworking and um, we haven't always had everything. I mean, we had a great life. I'm not saying that, but we, you know, he worked really hard to get here. So there's definitely people in the industry who aren't in it for healing and to help the community and are willing to, you know, try to hurt others by it. And I, I think that happens to any small Uh, mom and pop dispensary. I don't think it's just us, but as also a woman of color, I'm typically the only one sitting at the table who looks the way I do for being in the position that I am. Um, So not that it's a bad thing. I just, I do want to see more diversity in the industry as far as leaders go, um, because I mean, there's people who work in dispensaries of all different colors and backgrounds. Um, As far as leading Uh, I would definitely love to see more people of color and definitely women of color. You know, that's the big thing. But it seems like it's changing because you do see a lot of women stepping up now and um, people of color just trying to uh, break down these doors and get in. It is hard to acquire a dispensary license. It feels like it might be impossible for some people, but there's always a way in um, and to learn the business and understand it. Prop 207 had some social equity programs that were built into the proposition. Do you have faith that those programs will work, or do you see this really largely the industry, as you talked about, being taken over by big-dollar, out-of-town money, maybe even international money? I know there are Canadian companies um, operating in, in Arizona. From what I've seen, it just doesn't seem like yeah, it just seems like bigger dollars are going to keep moving in and pushing people out of the way and, you know, doing what it's always done in any industry is eventually being completely taken over and almost dehumanized. I mean, but uh, I don't know. It's just an opinion. So I, I'm not sure. I know how I feel about it. I'm, I know what I hope happens. I do want... um other people like my dad to get an opportunity to do this because he was given an opportunity and he took it. And I think he's done a really good job with it. Um, And there's plenty of people like my dad who weren't born with millions or, um, 
you know, didn't start out easy. So, I mean, and he's deserving of his position. And I know there's plenty of other people who are deserving of that as well and who would work hard given the opportunity and, you know, really focus on the patient care and what they need. Because that's that's the biggest thing I've seen with REC is that a lot of these bigger brands just see dollar signs. So they've thrown out a lot of the sale price, like the discounts and things like that, because they felt like they didn't need to do it anymore because they're going to make money regardless. But then we're looking at our patients that we are have grown to love and have gotten close to. And now they're, you know, their insurance doesn't cover this medicine for them and they really count on it. So they don't have to turn to pharmaceuticals and, um, you know, they're losing out on that now too, because of it, it is greed is all it can be is because they were able to do all those sales before, you know, it, it, they were capable of it. Granted, there is the new testing laws, which makes things a little more expensive, but um, all the sales are still doable and it's hurt people in the dispensaries because they, you know, they have no say over it at all. So um, I, I hope that more good people and more um, people who are connected to community can get these licenses and, you know, make a difference in their communities. That was Adriana Cottrell, the co-owner of Harambe Cafe. This week, we're looking at the legalization of marijuana in Arizona. The state of Arizona taxes the sale both of recreational and medical marijuana. The Arizona Department of Revenue reports since the start of the year, more than $740 million worth of medical and recreational marijuana has been purchased. Each month, the amount of recreational sales has increased, but it's still outpaced by medical sales. Medical marijuana is taxed by the state at a lower rate than recreational marijuana. The millions being paid in state taxes may make a dispensary sound like a good business, but federal taxes tell a different story, because marijuana is still federally illegal. Darren Guthrie is a CPA. His clients include a number of dispensaries in Tucson. He says their federal tax rate is high. So they pay income tax on their net income, but because of a law that was passed uh, and during the Nixon administration, they are only allowed to reduce their gross revenues by their cost of goods sold. So other businesses have a whole slew of other deductions for administration, for selling expenses, and dispensaries are prohibited from deducting any selling expenses, and they can only deduct, deduct administrative expenses to the extent that they relate to managing their inventory. So let's put that in terms that most people can understand. I own a business that is not a dispensary. One of your clients does own a dispensary. We make the exact same amount of money over the tax year. What's the difference in my business tax rate and your client's business tax rate, all things being equal? So dispensaries are, you know, faced with this problem from the inception, and some of them are more clever than others. So uh, depending on the quality of their planning and their tax advice, some of them can reduce their taxable income more than others. 
but I've seen effective tax rates among our clients ranging from, say, 50% to almost 200% of their net income. Um, you know, so compare that to a normal business where uh, if you're a corporation, your tax rate is 21%. So you said tax planning. So there are some ways you can reduce it, but it doesn't sound like maybe it's the best business model at this point. Well, for people who are new to the business, uh, they find themselves scrambling just to pay their basic bills. And getting professional support uh, from experts in this industry uh, is sometimes not their top priority. So they may or may not get around to doing that kind of planning until after they file a few years of tax returns paying these exorbitant rates. And at that point, you know, when they're getting further and further in the hole, trying to finance their continued operations and their taxes, which are extravagant, they find themselves forced to find better advisors and uh, people who can help them reduce their taxes. You've written some white papers and, and helped some of the various lobbying groups in Washington try and get this changed. Is there any hope in D.C. at this point for the legal marijuana industry to get these tax laws changed? There are efforts in tax court that are ongoing. Uh, there's a well-known dispensary in the San Francisco area that has been fighting a lawsuit for many years and unsuccessfully. Uh, they have used every justification they can to try to be treated as any other business. Uh, but at this point, it looks like uh, the only way they're going to get any relief is if Congress reschedules or deschedules marijuana, removing it from Schedule 1 to at least Schedule 3. And that's the problem right now, that it's, it's a Schedule 1 drug, and the way the tax laws are written, you can't make the, the normal deductions. That's right. And Schedule 1, for those who don't know, means it has no medical use that's accepted, and it's got a high propensity for abuse. So, you know, the states that have legalized have, you know, been keeping statistics on their local, you know, uh, rates of incarceration, uh, abuse, and so on, and they really haven't seen any marked increase in uh, states where marijuana has been legalized. So the federal argument really doesn't seem to have a lot of support. However, it is the law. What about state taxes? Arizona has a state income tax. Arizona voters legalized recreation, and long before that, medical marijuana. Have the state taxes come in line with that, or are they still in line with the federal? So in Arizona, we have uh, a system that treats marijuana dispensaries as nonprofit organizations at their inception. That's to say, the original law said all dispensaries were nonprofits. Recently, the Arizona Department of Health Services uh, updated the rules in uh, alignment with Proposition 207, and medical marijuana dispensaries that have also expanded into recreational and are now considered dual licensees may choose to become for-profit organizations. So that, that means that a medical dispensary in Arizona pays no state taxes, 
unless it converts to a for-profit model, in which case it will be liable for state taxes at the same level as other corporations. But they don't have a limitation on deductions that's imposed at the federal level. So they can take their ordinary business expenses in the state of Arizona to reduce their taxable income. That was Darren Guthrie, an accountant whose clients include marijuana dispensaries in Tucson. Recreational marijuana is legal in nearly two dozen states in U.S. territories. In 2012, Colorado voters legalized recreational marijuana. It went on sale in 2014. Like Arizona, Colorado had had medical marijuana for years. The On Something podcast, distributed by Colorado Public Radio, spent the last three seasons talking about marijuana. Anne-Maria Watt is the host of the podcast. We began our conversation talking about what Arizona can learn from Colorado's experience. Oh boy, the big question. Um, so, I mean, we just did a, we just wrapped a whole third season all about social equity. And so that's probably going to be my first answer. Um, these measures that would ensure that there's participation in the cannabis industry from all kinds of people and not just white wealthy folks. Um, and I think Colorado is a state that really, uh, dropped the ball on that and is, is, has been playing a lot of catch up in the last couple of years. Um, and it took like a governor's administration to change to do that in part, um, so I think that's probably the big one is, is tackling something like that early on. Um, I think to this, this, this might get me in trouble. Um, other reporters that cover cannabis too, we talk about this a lot that the, there, there is not enough of a balance at times between regulating the living crap out of weed, which the impulse is like completely understandable. Um, and making this, giving this industry a realistic chance at succeeding at being equitable and accessible. Um, I mean, at giving the legal market a real chance to compete with the illicit market. Um, I think, I think Colorado in particular is really aired on the side of just like clamping all the way the hell down on cannabis. And, you know, that has real advantages for people who can afford the cost of compliance with those laws and has real disadvantages for, uh, a lot of other people. <laughs> One of the things that proponents talked about and a lot of people talked about was a lot of taxes are, are going to go into state coffers and these are small businesses, so they'll be good for local economies. What was the experience in Colorado when it came to economy and taxes and things like that? Ooh, that's such an interesting question. Um Another way that Colorado is unique is we're, I believe, the only state so far that had earmarked a little sliver of the tax money for education. Um, and so my kind of side door into covering legalization was actually as an education reporter, because um, people would ask me all the time, well how, well, how do we still have a teacher shortage? Or how is there still like a school funding shortage? Aren't the like pot taxes supposed to fix all of this? Um, and I've written so many explainers on this. Um, so, uh, the, that funding is a drop in the bucket for education. And I think, uh, that just speaks to sort of the perception, like, all right, we were, we were going to do an episode about this one. So I have a whole spiel about taxes, but essentially for most people, 
who don't use marijuana, don't care about it, aren't planning on interacting with it. The taxes are the big carrot and stick, right? It's like the big sort of civic payoff to voting for legalization. Um, and I think there is a real uh, impact that can be made when these taxes are sort of targeted towards specific things um, in a meaningful way. And what has played out here in Colorado is uh, we get a bunch of money for marijuana taxes, but the every year, like pretty much every year, every legislative session, um, a handful of bills are passed that sort of cut those pie slices even thinner. Um, and I think you could almost see through those pie slices at, at this point. Um, so they do fund some very important services. They do fund education through a competitive grant program. Um, that can cover capital expenses for schools. Um, it is less sexy than saying pot taxes fund education here in Colorado, but that's the truth. Um, and then the other really super skinny slivers of the pie are, you know, behavioral health uh, support in schools, drug abuse prevention training in schools. Um, I could not tell you what the last, the latest few like slices have been. Um, but I've seen other states sort of earmark this money in much more intentional ways. Like I think Massachusetts has, uh, sectioned off a portion of tax money to go towards, I believe they call it like the E3 program. Um, and that is meant to be sort of targeted investment in neighborhoods that are considered to be disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Um, how that program's going, I can't speak to, but there, there at least was an intent early on to direct this money in a very specific way. Um, and I think it's easier also to be accountable to the taxpayers that way. Um, here, I could just tell you as a reporter, when, when, when people have asked me where the pot taxes go again, it's like, if I, if I could take a pie and cut it into the teeniest, tiniest slices, <laughs> I could show you. That was Anne Maria Wad, the host of the On Something podcast. An annual survey of college students conducted by the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the National Institutes of Health shows an increase in marijuana use among college-age Americans in 2020. At the same time, the survey shows a drop in alcohol use by the same group. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all of our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Emma Gibson and Megan Myskowski helped produce this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.